I don't usually like to brag, especially about my sermons, either before I preach them or because I am more critical of myself than anybody else is. Plus, sermons are somewhat unique in that they come across differently to different people. One person might love a sermon while another doesn't find much use in it. In fact, I was speaking to a young lady this past week about last Sunday's sermon, and she just flat out told me that while other sermons she had heard from me were good, last Sunday's just didn't do it for her. And so I recognized that they come across differently to different people. And so after her comment, I decided I would try harder this week. And the result is going to be evident. You have come on a good Sunday with a sermon that is bound to leave you impressed. If you have something to write on, I would encourage you to get it out with a pen or pencil because you are going to want to take notes today. I am going to give you some very pertinent and specific information about a topic that most every Christian is interested in, and in fact, many unbelievers are curious about as well. Because as we come to Mark chapter 13, Jesus is turning his attention, his teaching, though of course it's private, because last week we said his public ministry had come to a close, so now he's gathered around his disciples, and in this case, just a few of them, and he is giving them some private teaching about the future. And the future is what we are interested in, specifically what we call the end times. Sermons on the end times are always on the top of the list of what people want to hear about. So today I'm going to give you dates, details, and descriptions about what will happen just before Christ returns and thereafter. I am going to clear up almost all of your confusion about what's going to happen in the future. And I will close by giving you my top three that I suspect just might be the Antichrist and whether or not they are living today. Now, if you believe any of that, then you are already deceived and you really do need to listen to this sermon. I do not have dates. In fact, we're going to see next week that Jesus himself says, no one knows, not the angels, not the Son, no one except the Father, which means I don't have dates, and you don't either, and neither does that guru on television that seems to have a large audience. I don't have details. The Bible, in fact, is rather general and sparse with its details about what is going to occur and when in the future. Nor do I have a good idea, really any idea at all, about who the Antichrist is. Because everybody who has tried that in the past has all been wrong. We simply do not know. Well, you say, at least give me some signs. You may not have dates, details, and descriptions, but at least give me some signs, something to look for so that I will know that the end is imminent, that this is just right around the corner, and I can know it's going to happen. Well, that is the very question that we are going to hear the disciples ask this morning. They are going to ask for a sign, but the fact of the matter is Jesus doesn't really give them an answer to their question. 
In fact, he says that signs themselves, especially those signs that we think are good signs, can actually lead us astray in the process. We see signs everywhere. There are billboards everywhere we drive, signs along every interstate and side road that we can think of. Uh, Many cars are littered with bumper stickers telling us various things. And of course, then you have those people that must be one of the most boring jobs in the world, standing on a corner, twirling a sign, trying to get our attention, pointing us to whatever it is they're trying to sell or the store that they are working for. All of these signs are trying to point point us to something or someone beyond themselves. That is the function of a sign, to point us to something greater. There was a song sung by some group years ago called Sign, and the chorus began, Sign, sign, everywhere a sign. And that's the way many people think when it comes to eschatology, that is the study of last things or end times. Everywhere they point, there is a sign. Every headline in the morning paper is a sign. Every catastrophe that they hear on the news must be a sign. There's a sign everywhere. And yet we have to be very careful that we not misread the signs or take what is not a sign at all to be one. And so we are going to see today that in response to the disciples' question, that is, show us a sign, Jesus, instead of pointing them to the future, brings them back to the present and consistently encourages faithful living in the presence regardless of what we may or may not know about the future. So look with me at Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, as we think about signs, signs. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness to me. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever, whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. 
and you will be hated by all men, by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there He is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Now, as you can readily see from verse 1, Jesus is now moving out of the temple. And as he is doing it, some of the disciples are marveling at the construction. What wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings, they say. And indeed, they are right. The temple was a tremendous constructural feat in that day. It had been going on for about 50 years. That is, the construction had been going on for 50 years at this time, and it was not yet complete. The entire complex was some 35 acres, or to put it in our terms, that would hold about 12 football fields. It encompassed about one-sixth of the entire area of the old city of Jerusalem. It was built with many large stones, both the temple and the walls. As part of our tour of Jerusalem a couple of years ago, we actually went down underneath some of the streets of the city in this dark tunnel, and there we could see some of the old walls to the city. And we were told, and it it was pointed out to us, how huge these stones were. And it was amazing, and my mind immediately went to the fact of how could they have moved and maneuvered and placed these stones in a time when there were no cranes or other kinds of heavy equipment. And yet these stones were massive. Josephus, the Jewish historian, gives us the dimensions and weight of them, but I've chosen not to give that to you because if you're like me, just those dimensions really don't mean much to you. But suffice it to say, these stones are larger than your mind is conceiving. These were not cinder blocks that we use in construction of homes today. These were massive stones. And the disciples are marveling at them as they leave the temple. It was natural to marvel at the beauty and construction of this place. Herod had made it a top priority. And yet Jesus does not respond as his disciples might have thought he would, No doubt they were expecting him to agree with their assessment of the beauty and grandeur of the place that they were now exiting, and instead, he predicts its utter destruction, the devastation of everything that they were looking at. There will not be one stone left upon another is a way of saying that the devastation of this city and this temple is going to be complete. Everything will be torn down. Historically, we know that this took place some 40 years later in A.D. 70 
When Titus came into Jerusalem, the Roman general, and took the city, it was ravaged by fire, and then Caesar ordered that all of the buildings in the city be razed to the ground. Again, Josephus says this about the city. As to leave, he said it was so completely leveled as to leave future visitors to the spot no ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. And he witnessed this. He said it was completely leveled so that if you were to visit there sometime later, you would have thought no one had ever lived here. And while we know this happened, it was unthinkable in the first century, especially to the Jew, including these 12 disciples. Jesus has already hinted about it in the cursing of the fig tree. But now he expressly and explicitly predicts the temple will be destroyed. And so the prediction of the temple being destroyed leads some of the disciples to seek a sign desired. That is, how will we know when this is going to happen? And at least they do believe what Jesus says, as far-fetched as it must have seemed at that time, they seem to believe it and ask for a sign. These are the first four of the disciples that were called by Jesus to follow Him. No doubt they are asking on behalf of the entire group. This is, the setting is now the Mount of Olives. This is Mark's version of the Olivet Discourse. It's actually the longest teaching block in Mark's gospel. And as I said, it is private rather than public. And yet, even as it is the longest teaching block, it is one of, if not the most perplexing chapter in this entire book. The Mount of Olives sat some 300 feet above the city of Jerusalem. You know that Jerusalem sat on a hill. That is why the Bible consistently says they went up to Jerusalem, because geographically that was true. But the Mount of Olives was even higher than that, some 300 feet above that. As you left Jerusalem, you went down into the Kidron Valley and then rose again to the Mount of Olives. I could have brought you pictures of that to help you visualize, but frankly, I did that on Palm Sunday when we looked at the, at the triumphal entry, because Jesus is now retracing His steps. In the triumphal entry, He started on the Mount of Olives, went down to the Kidron Valley, and up again to Jerusalem. And now He is just doing the opposite. And so he gets to the Mount of Olives and he sits down, which would have afforded him and his disciples a tremendous view of not only the entire city, but certainly the temple as well. And with this as a background, they come and ask him for a sign. Show us a sign so that we will know when these things are about to take place. And if we can't find the signs and the details in the Scriptures... We tend to just add to it out of our own imagination, don't we? If Jesus isn't going to tell us, then we will just make it up as we go along, fabricating information from our fanciful minds or from the morning newspaper. Worse yet, I suppose, our many believers flock to hear these kinds of things. I am convinced that had I done the marketing and the publicity and told our community that indeed I was going to do a five or six week series on the end times with all the details that come with it, our attendance would have been marketably higher this morning because people want to hear that even if it's not Scripture. Even if I make it up, they're going to come and hear because they want to know. 
So in analyzing Jesus' answer to their desire for a sign, I want to divide it into two things. First, we are going to look at some common sights. That is, these are things that have taken place all throughout history and continue to do so even in our own day that are often viewed as signs of the end of times. And Jesus says in this text, in reality, these are just common sights. These happen all the time. Well, what are they? Well, the first common sight, verse 5, is deceivers, people coming in the name of Christ and even with signs and wonders in the name and the power of Christ, according to verse 22, and their desire is to lead people astray, and that is exactly what they do. It is not just their desire, but it is the outcome. They do, in fact, lead people astray. In fact, in verse 5, where you see the phrase, I am He, if some come in my name and say, I am He, that is really just the word, I am, in Greek. And hopefully you know that to be the divine name of God that He revealed in Exodus, and the divine name of God that Jesus takes upon Himself, specifically in John chapter 8. And here He says, there are going to come some deceivers who are going to say and even act like they are me, do not believe them. There have always been those throughout history who have come claiming to be a prophet or even the return of Christ. Usually they are very charismatic, not in the theological sense, but in the personality sense, and they come claiming some kind of power. And as a result of their personality and their power, they often gather a following, And that following remains with them until they are proven to be deceivers or they die, and invariably someone else will come and take their place with similar flash and similar results. The second common sight, verse 7, is war, or at least rumors of war. Here again, history tells us that there has scarcely been a time in history where there has not been a war somewhere around the globe. But when the major wars occur, the idea escalates that perhaps this is the beginning of the end. This was a common belief during World War I and World War II. And no doubt when we first saw those planes hitting the World uh, Towers 18 years ago, that thought came into many of our minds as well. Is this the beginning of the end? And yet here we are 18 years and several wars later still looking for signs. In fact, Jesus says that such wars must take place. That's, that wording means it is a divine necessity. God has willed that wars take place, and you say, why? Well, there's multiple reasons for that. Sometimes wars are necessary to protect the innocent. Sometimes wars are necessary to restrain the evil. There are other reasons as well. But they do not mean that the end has now come. Jesus makes that very clear in verse 7. A third common sight is what we might call and wrap up into one thing, natural disasters. Earthquakes are specifically mentioned here. And again, these have been so numerous throughout history that I need not give you specific examples. We've even had some minor ones around here in East Tennessee, though nothing in comparison to what has happened across the world throughout history 
And certainly we could add other natural disasters like tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis, and flooding. And anytime any of these things occur on a massive scale, the questions come again, is this a sign of the end times? The fourth one is famine, verse 8. Unfortunately, another common sight, maybe not in our part of the world, but across the globe. Just because you have enough food in your freezer or pantry to last weeks, if not months, does not mean that that is the norm across the world. Just because you have enough money to go out and buy whatever you want to eat this afternoon does not mean that everybody in the world has that opportunity. There is still a major world crisis when it comes to hunger, and there are multiple organizations that are doing their best to try to alleviate this problem. And if you've never traveled to a third world country and seen it firsthand, it is going to be very difficult for you to actually believe. But this is a common sight and always has been in world history. Those who simply do not have their daily food to eat. The final common sight, verses 9 through 13, is persecution. And while many of these details are clearly specific to the original apostles, the principles can be extended to any and all believers. I don't have time to go over the details of this persecution, but I do want to draw your attention to verse 11. This is a classic verse that is used out of context. Verse 11 And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Again, this is a verse that is often taken out of context to basically say you don't have to prepare to speak. You don't have to do any work ahead of time because in that time, the Holy Spirit will give you what you are to say, as if sermons or Sunday school lessons are going to be miraculously infused into you at the moment that you need it. And frankly, I wish that were the case. But it's not. That's not what this verse is talking about. This verse is talking about persecution. When you are hauled before authorities because of your faith in Christ, do not be anxious Because God will give you the words to say. The purpose here is that they not allow anxiety to take over, but have peace knowing that God is sovereign and in control, even in the worst form of trials when your life might hang in the balance. The severity of this persecution is seen in family members turning on family members. Perhaps in the midst of interrogation, one family member rats out another family member. And they are arrested and perhaps even killed. We saw this same thing in the last chapter of our study of the book of Micah. And it may be what Jesus had in mind as he spoke these words. We certainly see it in Jesus' life. Jesus was betrayed by one of his family, one of the twelve. Not family as we might detail it, but certainly the, the family of the disciples. One of them turned on him and turned him in. And again... Just because it may not be happening in our part of the world does not mean that we are to conclude that it does not happen. There are estimates that every 24 hours, every day, there are some 270 martyrs in the name of Christ. And I'm not talking about years ago. I'm talking about today. Estimates are 270 martyrs every hour of the day. 
meaning that over the last decade there have been some one million lose their lives for the sake of Christ. I watched a video this past week at a meeting of the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board of a young man who had come to the United States from a Muslim nation to study. He was a student at the University of Memphis. And while there, he had gotten somehow involved in the BCM, that is the Baptist Collegiate Ministries, and had been one to faith in Christ. And he had been growing in his faith in Christ, so much so that, that he wanted to share the gospel. He wanted to preach eventually. And having graduated from the University of Memphis, he made the decision to go back to his home country, knowing that going back meant his family would turn on him and potentially he could be arrested and killed because of his faith. And yet, he went anyway. That is where he is now. So this is very real, even if it is not so much so for us. Persecution happens all around the world. But the question is, are all these signs saying that the end is imminent, or are these common sights that we've seen throughout history? Persecution on a global level, trials and troubles on a personal level. Jesus compares all of these in verse 8 to birth pains. Now, you moms, especially first-time moms, know exactly what that is the pain of bearing children, but he's not really talking about all of that. He's talking about the very beginnings of that, that first time you have labor. And a first-time mom, when she has the first labor pains, is convinced that this is it. The baby is here. Let's go to the hospital. So much so that it is not uncommon for a first-time mom to go to the hospital and be told that the time is not here. Go home. You've got a while to wait. And Jesus compares it to that and says all of these common sights are the beginnings of birth pains. Now, it does mean that the baby is coming, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's right around the corner. So I said there were two parts to this, the first part being these five common sights that we've seen throughout history but the second thing I want to call your attention to in this desire for a sign is the current action that Jesus calls for as a result. Remember I said that the disciples are looking for a sign of the future, and Jesus consistently calls them back to the present and encourages them in their current action in the present. This truth is what I want to make sure you understand. That truth is what I want to leave you with this morning, that in spite of the desire for a sign, Jesus' response is consistently about living in the present. Future speculation is on their minds, but Jesus keeps talking about present faithfulness. And so He does not give timetables. He does not write out blueprints. Instead, He exhorts or commands them to faithful discipleship in the present. In fact, in this chapter, beginning around verse 5 through the end, there are no less than 19 commands about living now in a chapter that seems to be focused on the future. So let's go back to the first thing he says in response to their demand or desire for a sign. Verse 5. The first current action is to stand guard. Look at verse 5. You see that word see? And Jesus began to say to them, see. Now drop down to verse 9. 
but be on your guard. Drop down to verse 23, but be on your guard. In actuality, all three of those are the exact same word in the exact same tense. I'm not sure why they don't translate it that way in verse 5. All three of those are the same word. And all three of them mean that we are to stand guard in the present lest we be led astray. One of the principles of biblical interpretation is to look for something that is repeated. That does not mean that God must say something more than once for it to be true. That's not the point. But the point is that if something is repeated in a text, that is an indication that that is what's important. So three times in this text, and we'll see something very similar next week. Three times in this text, he says, be on your guard. So rather than focusing your eyes on the future and looking for some sign on the horizon, Jesus says, be on your guard today. Again, the reason this is essential is because many have already been led astray and we are susceptible as well. Even signs that we think are the ultimate signs that are pointing to the end might just lead us astray and cause us to drop our guard. Future speculation should not take the place of present obedience. I know we look around at the world. I know we look around at our nation. And we ask oftentimes, what in the world is going on? Is this a sign that the end is near? We need to be reminded that God is sovereign and in control of kings, of countries and nations, and yes, even of your life and mine. So stand firm in your faith. Be on guard against deception, both from without the church and from within, so that you are not led astray by false prophets and signs. The second current action, verses 10 and 11, is to testify. In looking toward the future, we must not lose sight of our task in the present, and that is gospel proclamation to all the nations. Now, remember, the word nations there does not mean geographical or political boundaries. It basically means people groups, people that have their own unique culture and their own unique language. And that is why our International Mission Board keeps track of people groups and keeps track of what they call unreached people groups. That is, those people groups who either have very little or no evangelical witness among them. Now, one of the great questions surrounding our faith that people often get puzzled over is the question, what about those who have never heard? It's really not all that hard of a question. What about those who have never heard? They cannot come to faith in Christ unless they hear, and they cannot hear unless someone tells them. And it is our responsibility to tell them. Jesus makes that very clear here, that we are to give and we are to go so that others can hear and respond. And therefore, we have a task before us until Christ returns. And He is delaying His return in part because of grace because he wants more people to hear. There is a third action, stand guard, testify, and then verse 13, endurance. Endurance, perseverance. Don't let anything turn you aside or discourage you from the faith. Not the destruction of the temple, nor the destruction of the city. 
Not natural disasters or personal trials, not even family betrayals, not even when everyone hates you because of your relationship with Christ. The true believer will continue in faith and persevere to the end, which is one reason, verse 23, that Jesus has warned us about this beforehand. Vance Havner, that well-known country preacher from North Carolina, once said, faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. Faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. If we do not persevere, we were not genuinely saved. It does not mean that our perseverance earns us salvation, but it does mean that enduring to the end is a sign of genuine faith. So don't give up or quit your walk with Jesus because your way might get difficult. Stand guard. Continue to testify before all people and endure. And by the way, isn't this what the book of Acts is is testifying about? The book of Acts is a commentary on what Jesus is saying here. It lays out for us how these men, in light of the resurrection, continued to testify about their faith in Christ to the end, even in spite of great persecution. The gospel advancing through adversity and the believers enduring. Well, we move now quickly to our last section Jesus has predicted the temple will be destroyed, and in response, the disciples, or at least four of them, have asked for a sign. They desire a sign to be given. The closest thing Jesus comes to giving them a sign is in this last section where he talks about the abomination declared. The word abomination means something that is repulsive to God and thus to His people. The word desolation is is the result of a profane act or person who who goes into the temple and desecrates the temple, and therefore it is abandoned by God and His people. The phrase comes from the book of Daniel, where it is used three times, referring to a scandal that would defile and profane the temple. So the question then becomes, when is this going to happen, or has it already happened? Well, historically, from the book of Daniel, we know that historically, in the near term, that prediction did take place in 168 B.C. That was the year that Antiochus Epiphanes came into Jerusalem and came into the temple and on the altar of burnt offering erected an altar to Zeus and then sacrificed a pig on the altar. And you can imagine how the Jews would have responded to this. They revolted. In fact, it became known as the Maccabean Revolt. And against all odds, they were successful, earning them the only century of self-rule until 1948. That was the only time the Maccabean Revolt, the aftermath of the Maccabean Revolt, the only time that the Jews ruled themselves until the nation of Israel was established in 1948. But that, of course, is not what Jesus is referring to because that's already happened when Jesus makes this statement. So there must be an additional fulfillment. And the two major options are these. Number one, the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 by Titus, something that we've already talked about, or a yet-to-be future fulfillment connected to the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which is why I read that passage of Scripture to you earlier. There is also the possibility of a double fulfillment. This is, this is common in prophecy. 
That is a near-term fulfillment and then an ultimate fulfillment sometime later, a future fulfillment that triggers the events of the end times. Now, clearly, this situation is urgent. It is a life and death matter, as multiple pictures attest. He says, if you happen to be on the rooftop when this happens, don't even go back inside. You know that that their homes had flat roofs that they used as outdoor areas, much like your patio or deck. And it was assessed by an outdoor staircase. And so this is such an urgent situation that he says, don't even go back in the house to get anything. And if you happen to be working out in the field, you've taken off your outer garment, your cloak, and you've laid it somewhere in the field so that you could get your work done, do not even bother going to pick up your cloak. This is such a serious situation that you need to flee. And woe to the woman who happens to be nursing a child or pregnant. It's going to be difficult for her to flee quickly during that time. And pray that it not happen in winter. And the reason that being is because the wadis, that is the these these canals that were normally dry beds, but in the wintertime, they would have water in them, and therefore, they would be difficult, if not impossible, to cross. Plus, you could not find anything to glean in the fields as you were fleeing. All of these pictures testify to the fact that this is going to be an urgent life-and-death situation, and therefore, when it happens, you must flee quickly. An unprecedented time of tribulation and turmoil from which no one would survive unless God, for the sake of the elect, would shorten the days, and indeed, He will step in. This urgent situation resulting in a gracious response from God on behalf of His people, the elect. And all of this concludes once again with another reminder of false leaders, people who come with words and wonders and offer hope but their real message is anything but. Instead, they are trying to lead even the elect astray if that, were not, if that were possible, and yet it's not because God preserves those who are His. Now, I realize this is one sermon where you might say to yourself, don't stop. Usually you're glad when I'm about done, but today you might say, no, don't stop. I, I need more. Tell me more information. When is this going to happen? What should I look for? What are going to be the signs? And yet, this passage is not a blueprint for the future. It is not a time code cracker with all of the clues so that you can become the next eschatological prophet and you can tell everybody what's going to happen. In fact, Jesus is actually trying to dampen uncontrolled enthusiasm and fanatical speculation about the future. If He wanted you to know more, He would have told you. We must learn to be content with mystery in our faith. After all, God is a God whom we cannot completely understand. If we could completely understand God, what kind of God would He be? The Bible says very clearly that His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So where does that leave us? It leaves us right where Jesus left these four who wanted a sign. Not looking in speculation to the future, but focused in faithfulness in the present in spite of troubles and trials. I remind you again, three times in this text, we find the same word. Beware. Stand your guard. Many people and even signs 
will lead us or seek to lead us astray, and we need to remain focused and faithful, confident in God's purposes in the present and confident in His presence. The question that remains then is, when, when it comes, will you be ready? Is your faith and trust in Christ and His completed work on Calvary? So that no matter when this event takes place, you'll be ready for it. I leave you with this. When it comes, no one will miss it. It will be on such a grand scale that all eyes will see it. When it comes, no one will miss it. Until it comes, no one should be misled. Let's pray.